Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. This is so much fun for me. I'm still Harvey Asher, still a sexaholic. This, I don't know what I'm going to say. And it makes every talk an adventure because I get to hear what God wants me to hear that day. Some of it I get from some of your responses. And, um, you know, that response about giving the first step, you know, you're giving the first step the middle finger if you get into shame. Um, I also use that expression, I give... I give my uh, attic the first, the middle finger. What do I mean? Is sometimes I'll be in the shower. And you know what they say, you know, you, you soap one time, that's to clean. You soap twice, you're fooling around with yourself. Well, sometimes I don't even have to soap once. And my body starts reacting. I mean... I'm almost 74 years old. My body still starts reacting. That's what an addict I am. You know? And what do I do? I say to my addict, if you don't leave me alone this very second, even though I am all soaked up, I'm going to walk out of this shower immediately. And it knows I mean business. I've been doing that since I got in recovery when my addict used to torture me about having sex with my wife. It was always on my mind. Am I getting it tonight? Am I going to get it tonight? Are we going to do it tonight? When will we do it tonight? And finally I said to my addict, if you don't leave me alone... Even if my wife requests it, I'll have to say no. And man, did my addict hate hearing that. And it knew I meant business. Because that's what I have to do with my addict. It's there for only one purpose, to kill me. If not physically, through AIDS or other things, or, or getting killed. You know, I once picked up this male prostitute. Uh, by the way, I call them male prostitutes. I used to say male hustlers. Because, thank goodness, I never went to prostitutes. Only you went to prostitutes. <laughs> I was in the program for years till I realized I went to prostitutes too. By the way, your exhibitionists and voyeurs, I never did stuff like that. 
my hanging around bathrooms and watching guys urinate or do stuff or my exposing myself, I never felt I was a exhibitionist or voyeur. It took me years in the program to know I was a predator, that I would pursue people when they didn't want to be pursued. This program, this self-honesty, I wish it would come immediately. But how does it come? It comes through sobriety. The more days you have the sobriety, the more chance you have for the self-honesty. And this concept of sobriety, God, in this program, can it get confusing? Well, it's not confusing. Roy very simply says what sobriety is. He says no sex with self. That means masturbation. And he says no sex outside of your marriage. That means when you're dating, it means when you're having, in quotes, a committed relationship, it is not a marriage. He also goes on to say marriage is defined as a heterosexual marriage. Now, whether we agree or don't agree with what he said is beside the point. That's how it's defined in this fellowship. And if you cannot accept that definition, it doesn't make you bad or good. It just means this probably isn't the fellowship for you. There are so many other S-fellowships. Why do people come in here determined to be evangelists and try to convert the meeting to definitions that it does not say? Well, there are simple reasons for it. This we're addicts. And we need to rebel. It's just that simple. Just recently did an inventory, 10th step inventory on rebellion. Man, did Roy have trouble with me for years. Because I rebelled towards him like I rebelled to any authoritative, in quotes, that I got in my mind, figure. You know, luckily I was able to do some deep, deep amends work about with myself and Roy. But it's very clear. No sex with self and no sex outside, a, not a, outside of a heterosexual marriage. Now, I was one of those people who did not want that clarification. Everyone thought it was because I was uh, pushing a homosexual agenda. No, it had nothing ever to do with it. It was just always people, that's what they thought. No, it had nothing to do with that. I didn't want the book changed at all. This I knew 
that if we start in my heart, that if we started changing it about that, maybe we'd start changing it about the word God and start putting in specific God's names. And so I was against changing the book at all. But Roy decided to put that asterisk in. And by the way, when I got honest with myself, the reason the word spouse was there rather than heterosexual marriage was Roy just assumed we all understood what spouse was. It never occurred to him. And I think it never occurred to him that we did not understand the first step when he said lust. He understood what he meant. The guy was way beyond the fellowship's awareness. He took it for granted. He knew what it meant. And this poor guy over the years, I think, got so disappointed because he kept seeing the fellowship was not really getting it. And I think what happened was over the years, he kept working with separate groups in SA to get this clarification and this style and that style. But I think he did not realize that we were not understanding what he was just taking for granted, the concept of lust. Why do I talk about it so much? Because I felt, and now I'm thinking of it as the first time as part of my additional amends to Roy, that I feel I need to continue what he was so diligently trying to tell us and for whatever reason somehow it did not penetrate the fellowship that this is not about masturbating it's not about sexually acting out it's about lust I said it all morning I'm going to keep saying it now so what happens with the sobriety definition You could play games with that definition all you want about what is sex with self. A voyeur could get by in this fellowship and be looking at a woman undressing in the window and let themselves get all aroused while watching it, and maybe even touching themselves, but because they don't get an orgasm, purposely, they say, oh, I'm still sober. What they do is they play legal games, legality. They they say, oh, I'm technically sober. Well, their misunderstanding That this is not a technical program, it's a spiritual program. You're either drunk or you're not drunk. It's that simple. And I cannot penetrate that concept even with sometimes with people I sponsor until I say to them, If you found out, here I am with 29 years of sobriety, if you found out I was spending time watching gay pornography, 
but I wasn't masturbating to orgasm, how would you feel about having me as a sponsor? And they always say the same. I'd feel very uncomfortable if you did that. <laughs> Yet, that's what they do. Heterosexually, homosexually, or, or uh, the game. Oh, that game. I'll just put a few letters in Google. Like woman. Or like panties. Very innocent little words. So they tell themselves. And then they wonder four hours later while they're still looking at it. They don't realize technically maybe they could get away with it and what they say to the group. But they get endorphined up. Their brains are saturated with all those chemicals and you get drunk. Now the program, what is the program about? My sponsors kept telling me. It's not even about lust. It's about comfort. How do we get the comfort? Through not having the lust one day at a time. But the program is about comfort. How do you know that? Because it's about a spiritual awakening. We have other words for spiritual awakening like serenity, comfort, love, truth. Lack of preoccupation mentally. Being relaxed. We have all kinds of words for this. And by the way, for those people who are, have difficulty believing in God as a higher power, you're not alone. Or Roy, not Roy, excuse me, or Bill W., would never have written the chapter, not as I used to think it says, to the agnostics. It says, we agnostics. No matter how we pretty it up, no matter how religious you say you were, no matter how... But you, you say, oh, I, I believe, I believe. How can you believe? Now, I'm talking male talk, but women could translate it for their, uh, their own uh, vocabulary. How can you believe in a higher power when your penis has been your higher power for most of your life? Everything we did was about that. Our genitalia. The amount of time. Is it big enough? Is it working well enough? Gee, I better measure it again. Maybe it's grown an inch since the last time. <laughs> what do people think it looks like? What? I mean, we're so preoccupied with our, in quotes, God. And we come into the program saying, oh, yeah, we have a God. Bull. We had to stop playing God before we had a God. 
That's the self-honesty Bill was able to tell us that. In chapter 5, we had to stop playing God, not God. Not God. We're not God. And for many people in the beginning... We, we, we say, and they're so astute with it, it doesn't say we believed a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It did not say we believed. It says we came to believe. We develop this through the steps, through surrender, through letting go. You know, I shared with someone uh, this morning that I didn't talk about it last night or this morning when I was talking about the 21 months of abstinence. But there, a great paradox happened during those 21 months for me. The less sex I had with my wife, the more like a man I felt. What an odd thing to happen. Well, what happened was I got to see that my wife loved me even without sex. She loved me. It had nothing to do with my genitalia. It ended up building my self-worth and self-esteem. This program is so full of paradoxes. It's amazing. That's because Bill and Bob were able to bring in Eastern stuff as well as our Western stuff that we're used to. The paradoxes. You only keep it by giving it away. You only win by surrendering. Wow! What heavy stuff! Totally doesn't make sense until you experience it. And so this concept for people who say they're agnostic or atheist, we have a very good expression. G-O-D. Good orderly direction. For those who are having difficulty with the power greater than themselves concept. And why it's so difficult to conceive of a power greater than yourself when your whole life you had the power greater than yourself, you would do anything to have sex. Anything. This, this was a power greater than ourselves. And yet, when you talk about having whatever the, your understanding is, that becomes a real problem. In my case, chapter 5 was very important, where it said we had to let go of our old ideas. My old idea was I had a God of my mother's understanding. <laughs> I had to let go of the God of my mother's understanding. The God who, when I didn't eat my food, would say, God will punish you for not eating all your food. 
If I, if smart talk to her, God will punish you for not treating your parents well. It was a God of my mother's understanding. Chapter 5 says it. We had to let go of our own ideas. Now I want to talk, talk, go back to that rebelliousness, the need people have to say, I'm in this program, but I'm not going to follow the sobriety definition. They don't know what they're talking about. Committed relationships, why not? Well, if it's so committed, why the heck don't you marry them? Who are you fooling but yourself? And what it had the issue with heterosexual marriage and now it's being legalized or whatever, it still doesn't change our program. Not homosexual marriage. It doesn't change our program. Everyone's welcomed here. But I tell guys who want to have a gay lifestyle and get married to a man or a woman, if they're, you know, lesbian or homosexual, I say, no one's going to kick you out of here. Learn all you can, but go to other fellowships where you could say you're sober, but don't say you're sober here. Get the best you can from here, but don't try to change this program. Because what happens, they end up losing their sobriety because they get so angry. They get so angry at the sobriety definition. And it endangers their own recovery. And their own recovery is the most important thing. And it's not like we're right or they're wrong or we're wrong and they're right or whatever. It's just what it is. Our definition. No big deal. We just take it one day at a time. And as I say to people who have same-sex issues, what's the big deal? I was celibate for 21 months. Just don't have sex for a while. And then you'll worry about these other issues later on. Just don't make big deals out of this. Because it's a detour. It's a decoy. It's a way to get us focused on a very small part of the population in this fellowship. Not that gay issues aren't an issue. A lot of guys in the fellowship are either cross-dressed or they've had gay experiences or what. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the detour, the decoy. If you keep concentrating on that, you then don't have to concentrate on what is the real corrosive element that penetrates throughout our fellowship. It's people saying they're sober when they're watching pornography day after day and they're living in all kinds of sexual fantasies and acting out in every way possible with the limit of not having an orgasm. Yeah, they could say technically they're sober. 
But the reality is they're probably drunk, whatever way they want to call it. Because if they could watch pornography successfully without getting drunk, then what the heck are they in the program for anyway? What do they need the program for? They need it because that's not what happens. What happens is they lose a whole night's sleep watching it. They're not like other men who could watch it at stag parties or watch it here or there. They're staying up night after night. They're doing it on the job. They're losing their, they're losing their jobs. So to thine own self be true. So these are some of these kind of basics about this is a disease. Most of us were born this way. We didn't want it to happen. We didn't make it happen. It happened. It ran in our families usually. Many of us were sexually abused. Um, I said to someone the other day, AA says it beautifully. It doesn't matter how the donkey got in the ditch. It only matters how to get the donkey out. So if the abuse got you in, if it didn't get you in, or into addiction, whatever you want. It's your own thing. You could make your own decisions. But that's not what we're here about. We're here about how to get the donkey out. And one way to guarantee not getting the donkey out is to obsess over past issues with hatred and anger. Yes, our program is about our inner peace and hatred and anger, and I'm an expert on that subject, <laughs> will not get us comfort. Letting go of hatred will get us the comfort. You know, I've told this story recently, but it's about forgiveness. You know, my mom stabbed me when I was about 15, 14 with a big bread knife had to go to the emergency room, had to get sewed up. And, you know, I hate, held that stuff in me for so long. Had the different sexual abuses and whatever. And my mother would never talk about it. Never brought it up, never mentioned it. And one day, I was at a conference in Buffalo, and I was telling Mark some of the story the other day. And I was at this conference in Buffalo, and an Essanon was sharing. And she shared how she had been sexually abused by her brother for years, even in adulthood. And her mother knew about it. And she got into, into Essanon, and she realized she needed to never see her mother and her brother. And so... She didn't see him for years, apparently. And she 
she got a phone call one day that her mother was dying. And she decided to go to the hospital to visit her mother. And she was sitting there with her mother. On the, her mother was dying and she said, what should I do? What should I do? And her mother, and she didn't know what to do. And she said, I'm going to get in the bed with my mother and hold her. And tell her all the things I wish over the years she could have said to me. Instead, I'll say them to her about loving her and caring about her. And she did that. Well, I heard that story and I went into the lobby and I called my mother up. And I said, Mom, just calling you to tell you I love you. And she said for the first time in my life, she said, but how could you with what I did to you? And I said, Mom, I forgave you a long time ago, especially in recovery, just like I hope my children have forgiven me for the stuff I have done to them. How did some of all that happen? And by the way, my mother, when I had quite a bit of sobriety, moved to Nashville. Um, and at 89, she was dying, and I went to the hospital, and I was sitting next to her, and I didn't know what to do, and I remembered that story from decades before and I got in bed with her and I held her and I told her all the things I wish she could have told me. I told her and I made further amends and she died in my arms. How did that stuff come about? Well, I was in an Al-Anon meeting. Three of my kids have quite a bit of sobriety now, but we went through three kids needing AA programs. And um, I was at a parent Al-Anon meeting, and some women suggested I read this <laughs> Reader's Digest article, <laughs> of all things. And it was about, I thought this is what it was about, a nun, Catholic nun, who lived in the Netherlands, and she and her sister during the Nazi occupation would hide Jews in their house. And one day the Nazis caught them and took her and her sister to the concentration camp, and in front of her, this SS trooper shot and murdered her sister. So at the end of the war, she decided she was going to spend her life dedicated to forgiveness and helping people forgive. And she went all over giving the talks. And one day she looks in the audience 
And there was the SS trooper who murdered her sister. And she said, God, I hate him. I hate him. I hate that man. He's in there. God, I can never forgive him. I hate him. I won't look. I'm not going to look at him. And she finishes her talk somehow. And she's on the reception line. And all of a sudden, he comes right up to her. And he puts his hand out. And he says, I know you know who I am. Can you forgive me? And in her mind, she's saying, God, I hate him. I hate him. I could never forgive him. Look what he did to my sister. I hate him. And then all of a sudden, she said, God, give me the strength to put my hand in his and she shook his hand and experienced the forgiveness. Last year I was asked to speak in Belgium. They were bringing Nancy and me over to Belgium and to Amsterdam. And I said, well, okay, we'll be there, you know, great. And all of a sudden, I said, Harvey, you're 73. You have such anger and hatred towards Germans and Polish people. Are you willing to die with that hatred and anger in recovery? And I said, no. And at our own expense, we went and spent a week in Germany helping German saves get sobriety. And then we went to Poland for a week, went to Warsaw and Krakow and helped some of the most beautiful human beings. And I got free of that hatred and anger. I made such wonderful friends there. You know, in Poland, they don't call each other members. They say, my brother, my brother. And this year, we're going back to Poland to help with Western Poland before we work with the Eastern Poland. And this year, I'm learning, how, I'm learning how to read Polish. And I'm taking Polish lessons. I cannot tell you how it feels not to have to carry anger and hatred. And to have forgiveness. The moment, the moment I made that decision to go at our own expense, this idea came to me out of nowhere. Harvey, ever since you've been a very little boy, people have been blaming you for killing someone from 2,000 years ago, saying it's all your fault. 
at how upset you'd be when people would say that. Harvey, you're no different than those people. You were blaming people from 1944 who weren't even born yet. The people, so many in Poland and and Germany, you're blaming them for things they were not even involved in. And isn't that our life? We're always blaming so we don't have to see our own stuff. If you spot it, you got it. Time and again, if someone in this fellowship's characteristics are annoying you, chances you are you have the same characteristics. This program is unbelievable when you stay sober one day at a time. What you get, you cannot put in words. And it's so, so easy. All you have to do is not act out for 24 hours or act in. And so they brought us um, to for three weeks to Israel. And I was telling the story last night, and we were we were living in an apartment house, an apartment, and the president's house was like over there of Israel, and we're here. And the soldiers would come by and check you when you went into your apartment. And every night I was getting calls from Iran. From guys who were suffering. And I'd say to Nancy, honey, one night the soldier's going to break the door down. This was, you know, I always assume they're listening to everything we're saying. I'm paranoid. What can I tell you? Turns out it's true, but it's still. (laughs) I said they're going to break the door down and take me away. They're going to say, why are you speaking in Israel across the street from the president's house to Iranians? So I said to Nancy, well, I'll tell them. Well, I'm trying to help them not masturbate and watch pornography. (laughs) And so instead of taking me to jail, they're going to lock me up in a mental hospital (laughs) saying, what's this guy talking about? Either way, I was going to get it. And the fear and walking through fear, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion and self-seeking. That's what the book says. I'm one big fear. So I get a call this week from Iran, no, an email, saying they want to do a Skype meeting with me. And I'm already picturing the NSA invading my house. <laughs> I tell people around me, I really do, Miss. I'm a paranoid nut. I'm, I'm better than I used to be, but not as well as I'm going to get. <laughs> That's what my sponsor kept reminding me. And I say to Nancy, if you see I'm missing... 
I guarantee you someone hasn't kidnapped me. It's they've taken me away under the Patriots Act saying, what the heck is this man talking to Iran and talking to Germany and talking to here and talking to there? They'll never believe me. (laughs) And yet, this is what I need to do for my sobriety. If that's God's will for me, then I'll have to 12-step wherever I go. But that 10th and 11th step, you know, what can I tell you? I need to carry the message in all my affairs. It's not an easy program, but it's a simple one. Where is it most difficult for me to use my program with my family? My sponsor would say something magic would happen to him. He'd come home. This great guru, the spiritual giant, would come home, touch the doorknob of his front of his door, and all of a sudden his entire program vanishes. <laughs> it just disappears. Working this fellowship in this in your home is difficult. And it's only this year I realized that the 12th step is it's just so interesting. I used to think it was only the chapter of uh, working with others. You know, that's what I figured. That's where, you know, working with others, how you 12 step, what you do, you go out, you do this. Then one day I realized, no, that's only one-fourth of the 12th step in the big book. The next part of working this in all our affairs is the chapter to the wives, two wives. It says, hey, we basically need to be aware of this programs even with our wives. And all of a sudden, the next chapter says, the family afterwards. Hey, you mean I need to work this program with my family also? And then it says to the employer, employer, you mean also in work? Very subtle. And yet it was so obvious. The 12th step are those last four, the four chapters until a vision for you. You know, without my 10th step, I am lost. I am such an evil, angry, hostile, aggressive, arrogant, selfish, self-centered nut. Without that tenth step, I am lost. The other day I said to my wife, how do you bear my selfishness? How can you take it? If 
forgot what happened. And so I, I put something I wanted first. But the good news through my 10th step is years ago, I never even noticed it. Then my sponsor would teach me, you first don't even know you're doing it. Then you start noticing you're doing it, but you can't stop. And then eventually it goes away. It's, it's another process. But I'm making enough 10th step inventories, spot checks, evening lately. Um, the, uh, God has this great sense of humor. These iPads and iPhones can either get you drunk as hell or give you such additional recovery. My iPad, I have on the bottom of my iPad an app first for my gratitude list. I do 25 things every day. I write for a gratitude list. First to do that then the next app is my little log, writing about when if, uh, what, how I work lately, the 10th step, is I have a list of 14 of my character defects, and each week I observe one of them. These, this week's on fear. I observe all the ways my fear comes out. Then I acknowledge I'm powerless, so what do I do? I work on the opposite of the fear, being courageous. And so my writings are about my being courageous that day. Then my next app is my, um, I'm skipping one in my mind, but oh, my Kindle. And I read a page of 12-step stuff, and I read a page from my religion. Do you know how many times I have read the AA book, the 12 and 12, the SA book, etc., by just reading one page a day? In AA, in 30 years, I have read that big book a heck of a lot of times. Just one page a day. This whole program is based on this basic concept of one thing at a time. 24 hours. It's so simple, most people can't get it. It's too simple. I don't act out or in today if my ass falls off. How much simpler can it get? So, and then the next app is um, my meditation app. And I have a, a thing on my app that um, it does 20 minutes. It gives you a list of certain amount. And I do a 20-minute meditation. Uh, I, this morning we talked a whole lot about uh, being honest with self and honest with God. Um, I can't tell you how many times I said I was going to meditate. And I do it for a week or two and then stop meditating. 
uh, just years and years worth. Well, about two years ago, we had an SA regional conference and they invited an AA guy who was a specialist on meditation and he came. And I said, oh, I'm going to meditate every day. And I said, you're such an effing liar. Harvey, you're not going to meditate every day. You have said that for years. Stop lying to yourself and lying to God. And I went up to my sponsee who was complaining he wasn't meditating. And I said to him, I want to meditate every day, but I am a complete liar. And I know I will stop after a week or two. Will you do an accountability with me? I will. You do whatever you want to do for meditation, and I'll do my 20 minutes, and then I will either call you after I've done it, or I'll text you. And it worked. It worked by my getting honest with myself and saying, I really need help. I'm not going to do this on my own. He did five minutes a day. I was doing my 20 minutes a day. Um, after three months, I noticed such a significant difference in me, which I did not want to admit. This I'm dishonest. If left to my own devices. And I called him up and I said, I'm ready to do this. I don't need to call you every day. And I've been doing it for a few years now. Uh, I rarely miss. Only times I basically miss is um, sometimes when I'm at conferences and I get in so late at night and I'm just so exhausted and I just give myself permission. And um, maybe once I'll miss once out of every four weeks or so. Uh, naturally, because I have this great defect called greed, as soon as I do it once a day, I start beating myself up saying, oh, Harvey, you know, usually people meditate twice a day. See, that's that tyrant God. He creeps in in all forms. I'm never doing enough, and he's going to get me because I'm not doing enough. And uh, I'm able to say, God, take that crappy thought away. Once a day is fine for me. Now. Um, so that 10th and 11th step, you know, uh, inventorying, I have another app on my phone that I just got a few weeks ago. Learned from my sponsee. He had the app, and it takes not even two, three minutes I do an evening inventory. Do I owe anyone a, an amend? You know. I owe someone an amend from last night. That family I spoke about last night with that very holy man. And I, um, 
I said I wouldn't share anything that went on in that room and last night without my really realizing it very consciously, well, might have realized it, but did it anyway, um, that I was sharing something from that room and I'm going to call up the guy, the son tomorrow and tell him that I, I revealed something even though there was no name attached or anything. I revealed something. I was wrong. You know, and ask their forgiveness. Um, I'm lost without that tenth step. I'm making it towards my wife frequently and not for content. A lot of times I'm right and she's wrong. She Really, she's wrong. <laughs> Is she wrong? But I'm making an amend for my style. I have a way of talking to her like she's dirt. And I need to make an amend for my style of talking to her and ask her forgiveness. You know that 11th step? Many of us have come from religious backgrounds and we're real used to prayer and it didn't work for us. Now I'm saying things that people usually don't say in public. But who are we kidding? If it worked for us, why are we here? So my AA sponsor explained it to me. He said, God is very busy. He's a very busy God. He has so much to do, you know, so many universes and cosmos, you know, so much. He said, he's so busy, he loves simple prayers. He doesn't need real complicated long prayers. He said there are two prayers in particular he loves so much because they're so short. One prayer is, help me. Help me, help. The other prayer that he just gets thrilled by is thank you. If your sponsor is not telling you to do gratitude lists every day, then tell your sponsor, hey, we need to start doing gratitude lists together. Gratitude is the only antidote for my craziness for my negative thinking, for my fears, to be grateful for what I have today, not what I think I don't have or I should have. Uh, a few months ago, I started working on greed because there's never enough. I planted two tomato plants. I ended up planting 10 tomato plants. We couldn't eat the tomatoes if we had a, 10 people in our family. We had tomatoes coming out of everywhere. I had to not plant two pepper plants. I must have had 20 pepper plants. 
I can't have enough. Remember that day I was so thrilled to get a, when they were really large, a 42 inch TV screen for my wall. And as soon as they put it up, I said, I should have bought a 48 inch one. <laughs> a few years ago, I got a 72 inch one. And don't you know the same thing happened when I put it up? Because I am incurable with my greed. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about other things. But regardless, so I read this tool to use. It said when you have greed, you want to do the opposite. You want to give money away. And it said to really do this, you need, rather than give $100 to one person, you need to give $1 to 100 people. So in my dashboard, I have a stack of singles and every single homeless person who's selling and naturally sell these little papers for homeless, I stop when I can, usually two to three times a day, and I take the dollar out and these people know me and I give them a dollar. And the first time I did it, I was in massive fear about something. Oh, I was getting a, a cataract operation and I'm blinded sobriety. Uh, about 11 years ago, I went blind on one eye with a retinal detachment. Now, you know what my group said to me when I came in blind. They said, see, it finally caught up, didn't it? <laughs> And, uh, you know, so um, I was all frightened and bits. I had to get a cataract operation, and I was convinced I'd be blind on both eyes and picturing how I'd get around and how I'd do SA, being blind, and you know how we do. And uh, I stopped and gave this gal the dollar, and I'm driving away and she didn't know I heard it and she said thank you God praise thee thank you Jesus and she said it in a way that I could hear the heavens open up this homeless woman thanking the God of her understanding for that dollar and my preoccupation, my fear disappeared immediately on the spot. And whenever I get real tense, I think of her gratitude. And she says it all the time. I hear it now. It's her, her way. She talks to God, the God of her understanding. She has a personal relationship. She is so thrilled to get a dollar. She honors him so much for that dollar. You know, we're just, for me, greed. I want more and more. But all he had to do was bring me to the program. 
it would have been enough. What more do I want from him? The miracle of bringing me here. I mean, what a miracle. And yet, it's like he always has to prove more and more. How he puts up with my crap is beyond me. Only one answer, his unconditional love. Only one answer. Boy, what time is it? Uh, two o'clock. Um, I think we're supposed to be on a break. So um, thank you for letting me share this.